Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special Independent Life podcast. From the inception of this podcast, I've been wanting to get our guest today on to do an interview. She is my mentor. She is my role model. She is who I want to be when I grow up. Her (laughs) name is uh, Dr. Nancy Hart. And she and I connected in our efforts to work with a a low-income neighborhood here in uh, Gainesville, which was known as the Southwest Neighborhoods and became a group known as the Southwest Advocacy Group, otherwise known as SWAG. We just jumped into this conversation. We were uh, just talking. uh, It was recording, but we didn't officially like you know, hit that uh, clipboard where we said action, we just rolled right into our conversation. And that's really just, you know, how we roll uh, together. Mm-hmm. And I have Nancy here on our intro to just quickly maybe uh, do a rough shot over your biographical background. What is it, Nancy? Well, uh, I've been a faculty member at UF for a million years. I'm retired from there. And I first started there in high-risk obstetrics, where I took care of mothers and babies. And then after I had my own kids, I became a pathologist. So I had two areas of expertise, birth and death. And that made me really interested in populations, population health, like the big statistic numbers. And that's how I got interested in health policy. And probably the most wonderful thing that happened to me at UF happened about the time I met you. And that was for the first time I taught undergraduate students. In fact, I think your class might have been the first undergraduate student group I ever addressed. Up until that time, it had always been medical students, residents, fellows, all medical, and maybe some nursing students. So I want to thank you for introducing me to the joys of the undergraduate students at UF because what a great resource for our community they have proven themselves to be. An amazing resource. And in this episode, we get into how to engage a community, how to connect with a community, get their trust, and to mobilize a community. What the social determinants of health are, education, employment, housing, transportation, social economic status, how the importance of really connecting the clinic to the community, what it means to be able to uh, address early learning and how important that is in terms of health outcomes and other outcomes, but also what are, what are some real solutions out there? How can we not just correct systems, but help to reach people and connect with their hearts to really make the kind of change that this world needs? I learned so much from this interview. Enjoy. Yeah, it's actually really important about the way you and I both learned how to work in community. And it's not obvious. There's no book. They didn't teach us this in school. Yeah. And I think you and I had some instincts just because of the type of people we were. And I just, yeah. I just so distinctly remember you coming by and saying, this, this swag area is so interesting and our students could do so much in that neighborhood. Um, what if we did this and what if we did that? And I said, you know what? You need to go to the matriarch, Joan Canton, 
and make sure all of this is okay with mm. her. Because the last thing we want to do is what university always does, which is say, we're so smart, we know so much, we're the experts. we yeah. think you need this and you need yeah. that, yeah. and the community goes, hold the phone, yeah. wait a minute, when did we ever say we wanted that? No. So yeah. <laughs> you you went over there to to talk to her and um, hopefully show respect, make friends, and that kind of thing. And I remember you came back with your student and you said, Dr. Hart, it was so difficult. Yeah. I had no idea it was going to be so difficult. She said, under no circumstances were our students going into swag. They were not going to be guinea pigs for yeah. students at the university and blah, blah, yep. blah. She was reading the Tuskegee. Oh, was incident. she? No, she had two books on it. Like, oh, like, and she, she was, was waving them at you? Yeah, she was like, <laughs> I'm, I'm like in the midst of like, you know, these both these books on the Tuskegee study. and. Oh, know, I like, didn't know that. It was wild. Yeah, I was, you know, of course, you know, in academics, we're learning about, you know, the, the, the horror, you know, of the Tuskegee study. And, and we had no intention of doing anything of like yeah. that. Yeah, and it was just like, that's so behind us, you know, like, how could that even be possibly on anyone's radar, you know, and. Yeah, there it is. So then I remember yeah. you saying to me, um, what do you think I should do? You said to me, Dr. Hart, yeah, this did I not work. This did not too. work. Yeah. What should we do? And I said, just keep going back. Just be who you no, are. Said, show up. Keep showing up. Show up. Don't, don't, be, don't sell them. Show them. Be who, <laughs> be who you are. Be yeah. Tony. You don't have to change Tony. Tony's yeah. perfect for this. But you have to... Um, be consistent and persistent. I might have even used that phrase. That be consistent familiar. and persistent. Uh -huh. And I'll never forget, um, I think it was one or two years later, and we were all meeting at the Tower Road Library, yeah. Yeah. and we were all in a big circle. <laughs> and um, you were there. Yeah. You, had, you had a student or two with you. I was there, and Joan was there. And... Um, Joan said, I have an announcement to make. And everybody, okay, what, what's up, Joan? <laughs> and she said, Dr. Delisle is going to be in charge of all research at SWAG. And I remember I just started to cry. I was so proud of you yeah. that you had done exactly what needed to be done, but it didn't happen fast, did it? No, I, I, and... and it happened over two years. Was it two years? It was two years of just like keep showing up. And uh, yeah, we were kept meeting at the Tower Road Library. Yeah. Because during this time, the, the, the swag neighborhoods uh, didn't, we didn't have, have a, a resource center. center. It was just community partners on a you know second Friday of the month, come here and community members. Let's just, you know, have an agenda. Let's talk, what are, you know, do needs assessments. And, and um, yeah, I, I, I want to say it's almost to the the time of the year because it was in December that that she did I remember that day vividly like it's one of the I, I think the could be like of anything I've ever been able to accomplish in my life it's it's probably one of the the most significant accomplishments I've ever you know had by getting the endorsement of a significant uh, gatekeeper who had a tremendous heart for her neighborhoods and wanted to see it uh, you know had the vision to see it as a as a better place and the I remember it because we we it was in uh, you know the, the the semester had not ended. Um, we left there to go to like one of those holiday socials. So it's almost like exactly you know what are we twenty twenty two now? 
that was probably 2009, 2010, you know, around mm -hmm. that time. It was very shortly before the, they started, you know, renovating for the, the Southwest Advocacy Resource Center. But yeah, that and, and so community and engaging our communities, um, you know, was was something that you and I, I think, intuitively were were kind of going through. And so that that the, you know, this might be a really good entryway into you know one of the things that you know I wanted to really you know pick your brain on is what have you learned about how to um, engage, connect, and mobilize a community? Like, what are what are some of the key ingredients you know that are that are needed? Because you know, we're here in the context of, you know, we work with people with disabilities and this community is very broad. Mm -hmm. It can also be very narrow when we look at disability types and, uh, you know, engaging with them, engaging, you know, uh, with veterans who have post-traumatic stress disorder all the way oh, gosh, you know, yeah. to people that, you know, are, you know, are deaf and uh, to people who, you know, maybe uh, have ADHD and, and all the different ages and subgroups that are in there. Like community is everywhere. Um, so what, what have you learned as far as like the tools that are in strategies and uh, that are necessary to, to engage in, and mobilize a community? Well, I think I learned by making terrible mistakes mm -hmm. and, um, well-intentioned, you know, I never intended to get anybody mad at me or mad at anyone or hurt, but I can think of so many dumb things I did at the beginning. And when I met you, my whole goal was, ooh, if I can just help him avoid one or two dumb things, <laughs> I'm going to tell him what I know so far. And yeah. we both were still learning at that time. I don't think either of us felt like we had all the tools in our toolbox. But the hardest thing, I think, when you're at the university and you have your hands on all of this really cool research and supposedly theory of change and you learn this stuff in school and you're so anxious to apply it in the community that you live in because it's not at all um, pie in the sky. It's right there. You see the whites of their eyes. You want to see mm. their lives improve and you're anxious to bring them what you know, but it turns out that what they know is so much more important than what we know. Mm. So it's almost like you have to take what you learned in school and what data you may have collected through, uh, you know, public resources legitimately and kind of put it in your back pocket and then go out in the community and figure out how to get people to talk about what they really care about. And that means they have to trust you first because sometimes they aren't willing to tell you what they really care about. All they're willing to do is put the brakes on and make sure you don't do that thing that's in your pocket. Mm. And that, I think that was the hardest part for me was to figure out um, how to inspire and motivate community to advocate for themselves. And that's really, really important with your job at the Center for Independent Living because, as you already pointed out, the population's really diverse in terms of their needs. So what's the best way to do it, Tony? I don't even know. Let me turn the question back to you. Do we need to make a million silos of different disability mm -hmm. categories and go to each one and say, what do you need and what do you want? Yeah. Or do we try to get a diverse... Uh, membership of this community in the room and say, 
can we come up with some common themes? Because it's going to be easier if we all are willing to go to the city commissioner, the county commissioner, the state legislature, and stand up together and say, we all want this, whatever this is. Mm -hmm. You can be unstoppable if you can do that. Yeah. That's why the question's posed. I think what the formula for me is the way I saw it with the Southwest Advocacy Group was the like you were saying, like coming from the university with our theories of change, and and with you um, at the time coming in with uh, these GIS maps. So these maps that you know will color code a, a geographic region and, and darker shades of. Um, the coloring of the map will mean higher density and prevalence of an outcome of its low birth weights, if it's, you know, percentage of uh, mothers, you know, uh, giving birth uh, you know, to low birth weight uh, babies or, or, or if it's child maltreatment or if it's domestic violence. And, you know, having that data, I think, was one, one piece yeah, and having these ideas of theory change. But like you were saying, the, the other piece here, which the, you know, um, is, is the real gold is the community itself and and the community itself having I think champions uh, you know within it that, mm -hmm. that that have a vision so we mentioned Joan Canton before so certainly her and um, you know her sisters um, and and a few other people in the in the neighborhood that would just you know talk with one another communicate and and, and envision you know uh, and have that imagination you know, for, for a better day, for a better neighborhood, and, and keep having those conversations. And, and uh, you know, it, if those worlds collide where you got, you know, people with certain resources that can, you know, speak the language of evidence-based and, and, you know, data, and then you have people in the community with a vision who, who have um, the kind of the... Um, the, I don't know if the authority is the right word, but at least the buy-in of the other community, like they're gatekeepers, they're stakeholders, they're champions for, and are seen by the community, you know, as representative of the community, um, and can come together, and, and everybody can uh, leverage what their talents and resources are, and can do it in a cohesive way. Um, I think that that, for me, was really where uh, the, the, the formula for the success of the Southwest Advocacy Group came in. So, so we have you know, um, the idea of trying to get a resource center in the middle of these neighborhoods that, took, you know, you know, that don't have the resources that they need to flourish. And so we, we came in there, you, you specifically you with the, this data, and then this neighborhood with a, a vision that then would go out and uh, ask door to door, you know, of the other people that lived in the neighborhood. Well, what do you think? You know, this neighborhood could look like. What would you like to see? What does it have that we need? Uh, what does it have that we would want to keep? And then, you know, being able to gather that information and together with this quantitative and qualitative information come together and present it to people who are you know, policymakers and can leverage you know financial resources that sure seems like a winning formula at least for that situation you know to have occurred what are your yeah thoughts? and i'm not i'm not sure we were perfect in our execution because i remember i went there with a bunch of health info mm -hmm. and sheriff went there with a bunch of crime and safety type info 
And then when we went door to door, we found out that the number one, two, three, four, and five priorities for the people in the neighborhood were their children. And I didn't have any specific uh, answer to that, and neither did the sheriff. In fact, our answers to what children needed were pretty clumsy on mm. both sides. And so, for example, the child center didn't happen for a long time after we were already there doing things for adults. Now, of course, doing good things for adults will help the children secondarily, but in order for community to trust us and believe, yeah. believe our intentions, we had to act on their desire for things for their children. And I'm not sure we were as quick about that or as perfect about that as we could have been, but it was really true that we never let it go. I, I personally never let it go, even though I was the health person and I didn't really know diddly do about how to create, create after-school programs for children, or in this case, a preschool, a wonderful preschool for children. I knew that that's what they wanted, and we would ultimately have to produce that if yeah. we were going to be successful. Right. And that took a long, long time. And I'm so glad that Joan... Uh, believed us that we were going to get around to it and she didn't just flick us flick us out of their neighborhood yeah. and say you guys aren't listening no we were listening but we just couldn't find our way there for a while it yeah. really took um the dorothy's to um and a whole <laughs> new set of partners yeah. that that we didn't have to get created of course one result which is good begat the other results that were good. Uh -huh. So um, I guess one thing you and I may have learned, and I want to hear what you say after I say this, is that if you can do one thing right, every journey starts with a step. If you can take one step in the right direction, it might be easier to take step number two and three if you've already got one going in the right direction. Do you think there's anything to that? Yeah, it's kind of like the snowball effect, I feel. You know, once you get one little victory underneath your belt, then then the other ones, you know, it's almost like making our bed at the beginning of the day. You know, accomplished one <laughs> I thing. got one thing done. <laughs> now I'm more likely to brush my teeth, and maybe I'm more likely to take the time to make a healthier meal, which I'm maybe more likely to, you know, go exercise before I go to work. And, you know, it just can absolutely snowball and get those victories um, and I, I feel like the, like, I, I think there's a, there's a famous philosopher that said, you know, wellness is no small thing, but it's made up of a lot of small things. Mm -hmm. And, and maybe in this case, you know, like community activation is no small thing, but it's made up of a lot of small things. And, and I think I, you know, harken back to what you're saying about, you know, gaining the trust of a community like that is priceless. But how, I mean, like that, that almost inevitably takes a lot of time, mm -hmm. which takes a lot of patience. And as we're, as we're talking this out, um, one, one thing that's really striking me right now um, about Joan in particular is she had a lot of patience for us. She did. Right? And I don't think I like, was appreciating at the time, you know, the amount of patience that, you know, she, she had with us to ascend the learning curve you know, that we needed to ascend in, in terms of, you know, understanding the community, who the community is, 
and why they might have reservations about us, which for me, when, when um, you know, at the beginning, when, uh, you know, that I was hitting the wall in terms of community buy-in and getting trust, it was like, I felt like I know my heart, I'm coming from a good place. How can you not know? How can you not see this? How can you not like understand that, you know, I'm here to help. Um, whereas on the other side is, is like, how can you not understand how I've lived a, an entire life of being, you know, taken advantage of right. or seen other people take advantage of by people that look just like you yep. and, and, and have, you know, been on the, uh, you know, and, and how dare you think that you can come into our neighborhood thinking that you're some white savior, you know, of, of us, you know, that we're a problem to be fixed and, and you not even knowing our you know, community. Are, are the solution and, and savior to everything that we've ever needed. How much patience she had. Yeah, and the other thing that was so interesting that we learned when we made all those maps, and, and we're not just talking about swag, but we're talking about the whole mapping area, all greater Gainesville, that everything was a hotspot for everything. So uh, people used to say to me, well, can we make more maps on this or make more maps on that? And I said, just erase the title, <laughs> put a new title on there, because the new map is going to look a lot like yeah, this map. Yeah, all the hotspots are going to be Yeah, the they're going to be the same. So it's like the holes in the Swiss cheese all line up. Yeah. So if you've got a problem with... Um, vulnerable mothers and babies it means you've also got a problem with reading in third grade or um, involvement with juvenile justice or whatever broken windows whatever mm -hmm. whatever and that I think is where I as a physician learned that um, we just can't look at the stuff we can fix with doctors and clinics and nurses and, and immunizations. We have to look at the social mm -hmm. fabric and the social determinants of health more broadly. And I think that's really relevant for um, your constituency now mm -hmm. because, uh, because I'll tell you one thing we don't know too much about is how much is transportation a barrier? <laughs> You're laughing, yeah. but, but let's talk about no, that for a sec. Totally. No, we have a paratransit services that we offer here. And uh, for me, you know, so I'm, I'm legally blind. So I don't meet the vision requirements to drive. Um, and so where I've decided to live, given that I have the privilege to be able to have that decision-making capacity, has been based on living in a community that is, you know, got public transportation, got the pedestrian type you know, accessibility that I would need to, to, to be more independent on uh, when and how and where I can go. Um, and so people that we serve in the 16 county catchment area, you know, that is rural areas, which doesn't always have, you know, the, 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 the RTS system that a Gainesville might have and the op options to be able to do that. Um, it, it, it's astounding. So we have people that um, need dialysis on a very regular basis that live in a rural area. Um, and the, the, um, the, the eligibility that they have for transportation disadvantaged uh, paratransit services, um, you know, it costs them $3 one way, you know, to, to go to the clinic, which, you know, sounds like a bargain in many ways, but for many of these people that are very low income who need dialysis multiple times a week, that's a $6 round trip multiple days a week, they can't do it can't afford it they don't go 
And so, like, you know, people that have physical disabilities um, uh, that, you know, cannot go to a bus stop um, the, and access the, the public transportation, who do, who do need a door-to-door -door service, but don't live in an area that, that, that provides those door-to-door -door services. People that have disabilities that are just low-income people with disabilities are more likely to live in poverty. They just can't afford transportation, even if they were able you know, to be able to have the vision to drive or the physical capabilities. The, the, the adaptive cars, you gotta make a certain amount of money to be able to get adaptive mobile you know, uh, vehicles that are out there to be able to do it. And so what does that mean for you know, going to school? What does that mean for going to work? What does that mean for just going shopping? Buying your groceries. For basic needs, to feel included in the community? You know, the, the, the transportation piece is here. And, and, of course, as you're mentioning, that's one of many of the, the social determinants of health, you know, that, that, that are impacting people. And so, yeah, that's, that's a, transportation is huge. So, so we, let yeah. me ask you something. Uh -huh. So we know, because we're academics, or at least we were in former lives, we're pretended to be, yeah. that, um, that some countries do this much better than we do. Mm -hmm. Where, what is the best practice and where is the best practice? And is there anything we can learn from somebody else who's kind of delved into transportation? You know, I, I'm not as astute on, you know, the international, like, you know, differences in, in policies and laws. I, I do believe, like, England is more, you know, up on things as, than, than we are, you know, in terms of transportation. Washington, D.C. does a pretty good job, actually. Uh, in that area in terms of accessible sidewalks and public transportation. But usually these are urbanized environments. Mm -hmm. you, know, you almost have to live in an urban setting, you know, to be able to, right. to, to get those kind of things. And, and when we look at, you know, Florida and certainly the, you know, the 16 counties that we're responsible for serving, it's very rural. rural. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's innovative, you know, kind of things that have, you know, happened that everybody's aware of, like, like ooh, Uber, you know, has like changed a lot of things. Um, and, and so this disruption, you know, could be good, especially when we look at autonomous vehicles. Um, there's a lot of exciting research at the university um, that are looking at autonomous vehicles and, you know, people with low vision and what that could mean for them. Um, but one of the, the things that, you know, the Ubers, you know, uh, don't address is that, you know, there's no um, training for Uber drivers on how to, um, you know, attend to uh, you know, someone that's uh, seeking an Uber transportation on how to work with people with disabilities who may be blind or low vision or have intellectual disabilities or cognitive disabilities, and certainly mm. their cars aren't set up to accommodate a wheelchair. Mm. You know, so, so like on, on one hand, this, this could be good. On the other hand, you know, there's certain limitations that, that, that are in place. And, and, and you know, can, is there a, a private entity that can make it you know, financially worth going into a business to be able to provide these services. So for right now, our paratransportation services are for uh, MV. You've probably seen MV, yeah. um, you know, dropping people off and picking them up in you know, front of healthcare facilities. And so uh, almost every area will have an MV type private you know, business that does communal uh, you know, uh, transportation for, for people. And, and in our area and, and throughout the United States and anywhere this service is provided, it's notoriously has certain issues. You know, it's great that it can, you know, be a form of transportation to get people out, but because it's communal driving, um, oftentimes, you know, the, the, the transportation is showing up to people's doors early oh, or yeah. late or picking them up to bring them home early or late. Um, uh, because, you know, drivers will have five, six different people Stops. at any one time coming to go to five or six different, you know, places and, 
you know, the different areas. And, and, and so, uh, you know, across the nation, you know, it's, so it seems systemic to me that, you know, right now that's, that's um, you know, one, one, one form, you know, of way of, of dealing with it, but it's still far from perfect. And, and uh, these other disruptive technologies, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, the, the driverless vehicles or the, the Ubers are somewhere out there, I think, as far as, you know, potentially a solution, but not there yet. So um, let me just ask you a, a sort of related question. Um, I was in D.C. when they were working on, you know, the ADA. And I was around before uh, public buildings had to have ramps and um, other accommodations for people to get into, you know, their mayor's office or their county commission yeah. office, you know what right. I'm saying? Sure, sure. Um, and I remember when that law was first passed, there was so much resistance to it because of the burden that it would place yeah. on... Cost on, of doing business. Yeah, yeah on, on existing buildings and um, yeah. maybe a little less complicated to make codes that would mm -hmm. require new buildings yeah. to to serve the needs of people with ambulatory issues of one or kind or another. But um, how much have things improved in the United States since the years when those accommodations were basically required? I mean, I, you and I need to think yeah. about that because right now what you and I are thinking about is how transportation needs to evolve to meet the needs of the community. But how much have buildings already changed to meet the needs of people um, with ambulatory challenges of one kind or another. Yeah, and I think that's one of been uh, regarded as the you know, big successes of, of, say, the ADA, was that ensuring that all you know buildings, especially public facilities, have you know the adequate access, you know, to be able to get in. That doorways are a certain size. Uh, you know, they get the wheelchair ramps and you know, grab bars and bathrooms and those other kind of things. Now, the, some buildings have been grandfathered in and not as required and, and those kind of things. But I'd say universally, like that's been deemed as one of the big successes of the ADA, um, and, it, and it's helped to improve things. But there's still, um, you know, many areas in which, uh, say, a bus route, if we're sticking with transportation. We'll be dropping people off where there's not a concrete slab or an easement onto you know wherever that that concrete slab or sidewalk may take take people like so there's still uh, a lot of areas that still aren't necessarily up to code i think one of the most disheartening parts of the ada that thought it would be a game changer would be in the area of uh, employment so the unemployment rate for people with disabilities is two to three times greater um, than the unemployment rate for people without disabilities. And that stays the same no matter how the economy is doing. So it's a relatively low unemployment rate right now, but it's still two to three times greater with people with disabilities. And, you know, when the economy is not so good and the unemployment rate is high, it's still two to three times. So they, they change together. And that's since 1990 where, you know, there's very clear that, you know, employers cannot discriminate based on people, you know, who have disabilities. So uh, as far as that goes, you know, th there's policies there. Um, but not much has necessarily changed in terms of, you know, uh, that outcome. Now, education has a different set of policies and, you know, kind of place for, you know, outside of the ADA. So you've got Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, um, but still, they, you know, people, students with disabilities are less likely to graduate than students without disabilities. 
Um, that then probably is an antecedent to what we were just, you know, I was just mentioned about employment. employment, you know, and then we talk about income, you know, so all these, you know, things are, are tied together. All these are social determinants of health. All those are interrelated. Um, but it's kind of one thing, I guess, to have policies on the books, you know, for, for the way systems should, you know, operate. Um, but, you know, systems are often made up of people. People have attitudes and beliefs and values that then may be a part of how that system flows. So sticking with employment, um, there's been you know, repeated research that shows that you know, um, when they will um, you know, apply, researchers will apply for a position that's being posted. And this could be you know, anything from you know, uh, food and beverage to an accountant at a major firm. Um, they will send in you know, two, two applications, um, equal you know, in work history and skills, um, in education, um, with a cover letter, one cover letter discloses disability, one does not. And, and inevitably, across almost all different kinds of fields, the people that uh, do not disclose disability are more likely to get a call for an interview than the people that disclose the disability. So the laws can be on the books, mm. you know, uh, but at the same time, you know, there are, are maybe beliefs about an employer that, well, you know, this person has a disability, they're gonna you know, require more money for, for me to provide an accommodation. Mm, you know, I'm, I'm gonna go through the myths. You know, the, they're, they're more likely to you know, be absent from work, they're more likely to file a complaint for equal opportunity, they're more likely to you know, um, you know, be harder to work with, their, their, their personality types may be more difficult you know, for the workplace. All these are myths that are commonly held by employers. So again, like we have policies and procedures and rules, but then we have these systems that are made up of people that have beliefs that often maybe are you know, with myths. So for me, it's like, you know, it's, it's great that we have these laws on the book, we need them. At the same time, like how do we, and now I'll change the interview over to you, is like, how do we then get into changing the beliefs and attitudes that people have that run these systems to be able to make effective change. Okay, well, I have an idea, and it's and you're gonna like it. <laughs> what if advocates like me asked you, who are the employee employers who are the most favorable for your community, and and I want to know who they are so I can take my business there. Uh, buying power. So uh. so what if? You know, I'm just making this up. You said, well, you know, Publix is pretty good about um, hiring people with various disabilities. I think they are because they I are. see them. Yeah. And yeah. Um, does that mean I should shop at Publix? I do, and I will. But where else should I, what restaurants should I go yeah. to? What services, you know, like is there a good massage therapist or a good mm -hmm. haircut place or a good gym or, you know, tell you tell me, maybe you should tell the community more broadly who's figuring out how to do the difficult work of carrying out these laws that are on the book and mm -hmm. aren't getting, aren't getting so many complaints and your, um, your constituents are telling you, no, this is a really good place to work. Send people over here. There was a movement, it reminds me of uh, like restaurants getting like this kind of uh, earning a, an identification as being, say, an autistically friendly restaurant. So people with autism are, are known and subject to being, needing to be in spaces that are low stimulus. Some restaurants will create areas 
because uh, well, restaurants can be you know high stimulating areas where it's more quiet spaces, maybe a certain room they can go into that has less stimulus. And there's certain like criteria to be considered an autistically friendly you know kind of restaurant, and will be you know known as that. Universities, um, you know, after uh, you know the the reauthorization of the uh, GI Bill for for uh, combat era. Um, uh, in the 2000s. So the GI, the, the GI Bill, which was first authorized after World War II, an incentive for returning you know, military uh, to, to go back uh, to, you know, to school or to go to school for post-secondary to, to reintegrate back into civilian life, got reauthorized in 2008. And so there was this influx of uh, veterans into post-secondary uh, academic institutions. To, to either get you know credentialed and, and certified in areas that they had skills or go into a new area um, that they wanted to potentially seek employment and make a living off of doing. A lot of post-secondary institutions at the time weren't considered veteran-friendly campuses. But then there was a criteria that got developed to say if your campus has you know, a veteran center um, that had these certain supports or housing to be able to house veterans or to be able to like they, all of a sudden it came up with these criteria so i love where you're where, where you're going at with this to be able to like almost identify you know things that would be quote whatever fill in the blank friendly that people can see and be an incentive you know to go into you know to be able to do that yeah like what if what if we all wanted to know from from you from the center for independent living who the best employers are i think we all we all could get on board with that yeah So these social determinants of health, education, employment, income, transportation, we haven't even talked about affordable and accessible and safe housing. So you started out in the clinic, okay? So yeah, a pediatrician, correct? No, OBGYN. OBGYN, I'm sorry. Um, so walk me through your like discovery of, you know, here you are in the clinic, but you seem to have learned that it's not just what happens in the clinic, but it's in the community and these, you know, so-called social determinants of health being very critical. Like, how, explain to me how that, you know, learning happened. Well, um, let me think. So I kind of grew up in the lily white suburbs of Chicago. I didn't even go to uh, high school or college with people of color. And so then I went to medical school, and of course, in medical school, there's no one who um, segregates patients at the entrance to the emergency room or the OB unit or the OB clinic. I mean, everything is integrated. And so the first real connection I had with a diverse population was in the medical world. Um, not only the staff, in the hospital, but our patients. And um, it was almost cheating in a way because it's pretty easy to put aside your biases when, you know, she's in labor and she's eight centimeters. You know, like that mm -hmm. just sends you down yeah, yeah. a route. It doesn't matter. It, it doesn't real really quick. matter, yeah. you know, what her race or ethnicity is. So, yeah. um, so I, that was good for me. 
uh, because that helped me um, get a big education that I hadn't gotten at home. And um, then other things happened, like I observed in Kentucky when I was in my training that we had quite a few women who couldn't sign their operative permits. They couldn't sign their consents for treatment. They just placed an X on the line, which meant that they were so illiterate they didn't even know how to sign their own name. Mm -hmm. And that was from Appalachia. And that just kind of blew my mind uh -huh. a little bit because I had never, ever met anyone that was so illiterate they couldn't sign their name. And, and little things like that happened over and over that helped me realize that there was a big uh, piece of my education that was missing. And then as I had my own children and um, I got to know my patients better and I had certain patients who came back for baby number two and sent their sister in or their aunt or, you know, my practice got bigger and bigger and bigger, I began to appreciate that there were, there were a lot of things going on that had to do with things outside of medicine per se. And I'll give you an example. When we... We had a conference room like this, and we used to confer about our high-risk OB patients, and we had a high-risk OB patient with diabetes. And she needed to have certain food, and she needed to eat at a certain time, and she needed to take her insulin at a certain time. And we were all kind of geared up for getting her blood sugar levels just right so her baby wouldn't die in utero and she wouldn't have these complications related to diabetes. Well, come to find out that um, the lady was on food stamps and the um, social worker, was con the nutritionist was concerned she didn't have the right food to eat. So the social worker said, no problem. When she gets her food stamps, I'll take her to the grocery store. We'll buy her food with her food stamps so she'll have what she needs. Mm -hmm. And then the social worker said, well, then what happened was we took these bags of groceries into her house and her neighbors began to show up and carry away the food. So the social worker wasn't sure that they were stealing it from her. It could be she owed them because they'd given her rides somewhere or, you know, like the social gotcha. worker wasn't saying these were horrible people. Yeah. She was just saying this woman could not hold on to the food that she had. And then someone else said, well, we don't think she's taking her insulin at the right time. So um, the social worker said, well, she doesn't have a clock. So we kind of passed a hat around the room. Everybody tossed in a few bucks, and we gave it to the social worker and said, buy her a clock. Mm -hmm. And so the social worker comes back the next week and says, she can't tell time. You know, and, I, and I'm yeah. sitting there in my white coat thinking, we are so stupid yeah. because all we can think about is her blood sugar level when really she needs to be in an environment that cares for her. She's literally not capable of caring for herself, and Lord knows what's going to happen when yeah. she has that baby. And so I started thinking more broadly. Like, it's not just about me and my patient with diabetes. It's about me and this world that she lives in all of her circumstances that are going to influence whether I'm any good for her or not. Mm -hmm. And I just realized I was impotent. There was not much I could do to make this lady's circumstances better, which made me totally appreciate the social worker. 
So that's, this is the way a doctor learns about the world. You wouldn't believe how negligent our education was on things like nutrition and what to do if someone's so illiterate they can't tell time. You know Uh, what I'm saying? Sure. Uh, That was just totally not included. And that's when I realized I needed to learn more about my community. And I started... um, finding ways to work in community. And at the beginning, I was so clumsy. I was, I mean, you were extraordinarily good compared to what I was when I started. I was like clueless. And I was always saying the wrong thing to people and doing the wrong thing. And luckily, I had friends around me who thought that I was worthy of their investment of effort. And Uh they would say, we never say that. (laughs) <laughs> you know, we never do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm really sorry. How do yeah. I make amends? And so I just kind of clunked around yeah. until I could tell that I stopped uh, offending people on a daily basis. I got a little better at, um, at my relationships with community. And that's when I got really interested in that population level data. So I, I, I feel like it's, it's getting better, uh, understanding the connection between clinic and community. Um, uh, you know, certainly here at our, our center, uh, since I've been here for eight years now, I'm starting to see more clinics reaching out to us, but more health insurance companies huh. you know, that, are, yeah, that are wanting us to help out. They're starting to understand the social determinants. And, and this is an organization that works on getting people graduated from high school, getting jobs, you know, access to affordable housing, transportation. Like, we're, we're addressing the social determinants of health. And they're starting to realize, like, oh, this is going to help save money on insurance costs, you know, premiums for our, their members. So now we're getting invited to community health clinics to, to do presentations on disability awareness and with people with disabilities, they may be seen, how to speak with them, like you're saying, the common language and, and, and those kind of things, and how their transportation or where they live or, you know, these other health literacy and other kind of things really do matter. In your own practice, how did you see, or at least retrospectively, if you didn't see it at the time, disability in terms of the patients you saw or the community level factors that could be impacting the patients you saw when you were in the clinical setting? I think we were pretty clumsy and pretty stupid. (laughs) If you're the type of clinician who has a little bit of humility. You will ask patients things in such a way that you can get the job done because they'll tell you, do this, don't do that. Or they'll say, you know, if you, if you help me turn in this direction, I can, uh, I can get myself in a position that you can actually put a speculum mm-hmm. <laughs> and look at my cervix. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? You've got yeah. something you've got to do, and you're like, eh, I'm not really sure how to do this. I mean, we learned so many accommodating things in the GYN clinic because think about what it takes to do a GYN exam. Mm-hmm. You have to move people's limbs around, and if they can't move them mm-hmm. uh, for one reason or another, or it's uncomfortable for them to be in the position that um, that – a pretty athletic person Mm -hmm. could be in you just learn accommodations and sometimes the nurses were really good at that like um i remember having a patient who couldn't put her feet in the stirrups for me to do a pelvic exam Mm -hmm. but she could put her feet on my shoulders 
and I could get close enough to her to do what I needed to do while she was comfortable with her feet on my shoulders. And all I had to do was get over the fact that her feet were on my shoulders. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That's pretty Mm -hmm. easy. That's pretty easy. That's a pretty easy accommodation. Well, but I remember a patient I had that... um, that had a, uh, I forget exactly why, uh, she was paraplegic, and I don't remember why, what happened to her, mm-hmm. but um, she had had a lower GI, and in the lower GI, they put this clay-like material in, in, your, in your bottom so that they can take a film that shows the, the gut. Mm-hmm. And they... Because she couldn't defecate normally, it hadn't come out, and that clay stayed in there. And it stayed in there such a long time that she developed a fever of unknown etiology. So she wound up in the hospital with this weirdo fever, and the doctors that were taking care of her went down their list of things to explore if someone has a fever of unknown etiology, and one of them is a GYN exam. So they sent her down to my clinic, And I had to ask her all these questions about whether she might have a sexually transmitted infection. And she's just kind of like, Dr. Hart, are you kidding me? Uh, uh, No, no, that isn't it. And I said, okay, well, it's something. Uh, I'm going to do a pelvic exam, okay? Mm -hmm. And she's like, yeah, whatever. Let's figure out what's going on with this fever. And we found this glob of barium (laughs) and got it out. And... Her fever went away. Wow. (laughs) I just remember thinking, would someone just take a history, just go in and talk to her and say, you know, what happened before you got the fever and what do you think it might be? And bless her heart, uh, you know, we put her through, before she came to me, she went through a whole bunch of hospital machinations to try Mm -hmm. to figure out why she had a fever. And it was actually very simple to resolve. And so um, patients teach doctors and um, nurses, and um, and then they have to share that information. But, you know, wasn't that kind of anecdotal? I sure didn't learn that in school. Mm-hmm. None of that was learned in school. So imagine the situation for your constituents who've got to train every professional they come in contact with. Yeah. I'm sure they're weary of it. Yeah. But maybe the same thing could happen for health professionals. They could create a list of health professionals who accommodate me when I go to their office, who ask the right questions and not the stupid questions. You know, yeah. they, they know how to move me around in their office without making me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if that would be a thing that you could do also is... Yeah, perhaps. You know, one of the things that jumps out to me as far as a community that would really, I, I think, <clears throat> really gravitate towards such an endorsement or you know, certification uh, would be the deaf community. I don't know if you've had much experience at all with uh, deaf patients, but, you know, getting a uh, sign language interpreter right. into that clinical setting... Um, and, and your friend and our friend, Dr. Laura Geyer, has really taken on to this issue of you know, ensuring effective communication while the healthcare provider is communicating it to the patient who's deaf, right? And that takes health literacy to a whole other dimension. It sure does. Yeah. And working here, it's really opened my eyes to, to the issue of how many times we are having to advocate you know, to the healthcare provider that, no, it's your role and responsibility to, to provide the sign language interpreter. 
we'll get calls all the time saying, you know, can't they just bring someone who knows yeah. them in their family yeah. to sign for them? And, you know, isn't that and you, on their insurance? And You, know, you it, really don't necessarily yeah. want your family member knowing what you're talking about with your totally. doctor. Totally, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's sort of Absolutely, private. Absolutely, right? You know, it just like, it, it glosses over a lot of things right there, <laughs> let alone it's the law that the healthcare provider has to, like, and so even the healthcare provider's understanding whose role and responsibility it is. You know, we will often have to say, you know, whose role and responsibility is it to have that wheelchair ramp, you know, going into your clinic? Mm. You know, it's the same thing. It's access, mm. you know, and, and it's access to effective communication in this sense, you know. So it's like they are the wheelchair ramp. You know, they just happen to be a, an interpreter that needs to be in the room. And, you know, how often, you know, we'll hear, well, you know, can I just write information down and we can exchange it back and forth? Or, you know, um, what about now? Now, all of a sudden, they have these video relay, you know, screens, which is very limiting for many people who are deaf. They'll tell us that, you know, this, you know, they, the, the person on the screen can't see the entire room. There's multiple people in the room, you know, body language and et cetera. That, and I imagine healthcare providers come across people who are visually impaired. And, you know, when I think of health literacy, I also think about, you know, our, our population who has cognitive intellectual disabilities. And, you know, the ADA is on, on the books for ensuring effective communication for someone that's deaf. So you got an interpreter who interprets the oral communication for them. But, you know, I often think about effective communication for people who have cognitive and intellectual you know, disabilities. Health literacy, ability to communicate in a language that people can understand and act on. You know, I don't know if you had any experiences or know of people that, you know, are seeking health care that have intellectual or cognitive disabilities and the ability then to communicate with them in a, in a language that they can understand and act on. Um, and I don't know if you have any experiences in that area. Well, I, in, you know, in OB, there were so many nightmares um, in, in that area because a lot of the women who were having babies had been basically assaulted. Uh-huh. You know, they were victimized. Okay. And I remember being, um, being a very concerned physician that not only was this young woman assaulted, but how are we going to prevent the next assault and who's going to take care of that baby because she doesn't want anything to do with mm-hmm. it. So there were, there were layers and layers of problems associated with assaults. And, I'm, and that's another whole subject that you may or may not want to delve into is how people with disabilities are taken advantage of. Seven times greater in peop- uh, women who have cognitive and that's awful. disabilities. That's awful. That's assault. just, that's Seven just times awful and scary. Yeah. Yeah. And um, what's what's interesting is right now there's so much attention being paid to people with cognitive disabilities at the end of life, you know, with aging. Sure. Um, and of course, they depend upon family members to come to the appointments and remember th- what the medication list is and yeah. what the allergies are and to see if they can secure consent to do a procedure. But gosh, dumb junk happens all the time. Like people we know and love, I remember I could name a name, a dear friend of yours and mine saying, well, I got to take my mother in for a colonoscopy. She's 98. And I'm like, you don't need to take your mother for a colonoscopy at age 98. And she said, well, my brother had colon cancer. I said, you don't need to take your mother for a colonoscopy at age 98. I mean, for her, she was very confused, moving her to this environment and then doing this procedure, which in her mind might be an assault. I could see nothing to be gained by that at the age of 98. And our mutual friend just couldn't see past the fact that 
there was a family history and she wanted her mother to get the best medical care. But mm -hmm. sometimes the best medical care is nothing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. There's been a lot. Of, yeah. No. There's been a lot in the press about you know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, when come to do on. those procedures and when not to, and are we doing more harm? But I think yeah. it's really difficult once um, the patient isn't communicating so well anymore. You yeah. wind up depending on family members, and sometimes we've given them our our medical power of attorney or whatever it's called. We've turned over our right to them to make healthcare decisions for us. And I think it's super tricky. It's treacherous. And I think, I think what happens to you when you're, when you're 14 and your parents are still there to advocate for you, but all of a sudden you're 21 and they're not. That's right. Yeah. And just aging out of yeah. all the supports for children, what makes it comfortable for you maybe you do want to break free but maybe you don't right for me one of the key pieces here is getting you know healthcare providers to perhaps you know see what you're articulated and you're seeing what's behind the patient what's really going on and being trained as a clinician um, what you're trained to do but really what are the underlying mechanisms that are really in play that may be way out of reach in that clinical setting and so you seeing beyond the clinic and into the community and these social determinants of health and literacy levels and, and all these other kind of things that, that could be explaining, you know, a lot of what's going on. And, and I think you um, alluded to perhaps one piece of many pieces that can get other healthcare clinicians to see what you've seen and then to perhaps go down the path that you've gone down in terms of addressing those issues that occur outside the clinic, I think you said humility. Like for mm -hmm. me, that's a that's a very high high virtue uh, to have. Um, but what else, you know, or you can go in on humility is needed for for people that are in clinical settings to open up their eyes to see the light, and then to go down the path with the, a light is illuminating as far as addressing the things that are underlying some of the, the issues that they're having to see. On okay, so here's yeah. my fantasy. All right. Um, one of the things that we did at UF with the new medical students was we assigned them a family. Okay. What if every one of those families had at least one disabled person? Mm. And they stayed with that family for four years. You know, a lot of things can happen in four years. Exactly. People can get better. They can get worse. They can become pregnant. They can have a child. A lot can happen in four years. If, if somebody in that family was pregnant at the beginning of the four years, they would not only see that, but they'd see early childhood development, which right. would be There's... what an amazing education. And, and you don't have to go any farther than that because I think if you at least get the idea of how one family copes with having one disabled individual, doesn't matter whether they're old or young, if they could just see what is involved, they would be able to generalize that to other situations as they go forward in their education. And I never had anything that specific, but um, you know, if you've got a certain amount of cultural humility about what you're gonna <laughs> learn from your family, uh -huh. you, know, you don't go in there as a first year medical student thinking you know anything because you don't. Yeah. So you're really there to find out what's, what's medical life like for this family. 
in this situation. Wouldn't that be cool? I, I love mean, it. So a sign, like as a, as a, a family, that their four year track, you know, one yeah. family, you stick yeah. with them. To... And you go visit them. You, you, um, come back to school with, you know, with a list of stuff like they need a grab bar. Huh. Their, their bathroom doesn't have a grab bar. This is dangerous. Or can we get somebody to go build a ramp so yeah, they right. can get in the door mm -hmm. and, um, you know, what do they do if a tree falls down in their yard? Do we have somebody that can come chainsaw it up for them? You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. you could have this little love and care and, and advocacy happen. And you could do it if you wanted with a team of students. Like maybe you would like to have a social work student and a nursing student and a medical student on that team because some of them are going to have relevant ideas and skills to bring to the right. table and teach the other ones. Yeah. Because I got to say, social workers are the glue. They know a lot of stuff. Yeah. And I wish I had had social workers next to me all the way through school. Right. Yeah. So you were responsible for one of the like residency rotations, maybe uh, for med students. Was it the community uh, involvement or engagement? Uh, that piece? was uh, that was an elective, an and elective? then and okay. then I was able to convince someone who did the um, the required physical exam part of of med school to include certain things in that physical exam course. So those students were required to go out to the equal access clinic or the mobile clinic. So for your listeners, that's the free clinics yeah. in our network. They were required to go out there. And what's interesting is they were required to go there very little, but the students who really liked it went back on yeah. a volunteer basis yeah. and became faithful participants in those free clinics. And the gal who taught that physical exam course was a faithful volunteer herself. And she told me the most wonderful thing. When they came to their exam at the end of the year, where they had to demonstrate for a standardized patient or an actor you know, that they could do a physical exam and take a history. She said those students that went to those free clinics faithfully were the best, best the best, right. the best. Yeah. And she said, I can't think of a better way to teach the students than to have them give free health care to people who are, are not terribly judgmental because they're not paying for a thing, mm -hmm. but they have a lot of needs. Yeah. And I remember one time um, we were doing a free clinic at the Tower Road Library. And a student had me come in and see a patient who had had a lesion on his arm. I don't know what it was, maybe a bee sting or, or an abscess of some kind. And I took a pen and I drew a little line around it. And I said, if this redness goes outside the line, I need to know because I may not be giving you the appropriate treatment. If it's getting bigger, that's not good. I need to do something different. So would you mind if one of our students calls you 
next week and asks you whether that redness is staying inside the line that I just drew with a pen on your arm. And the patient went, er, ah, er, ah, er, ah. And the student in the room said, oh, well, sir, that would be me. I would be the one calling you because I'm, I'm your person. And the patient looked at him and said, I'd be pleased to take oh, your hand. call. Right on. And I was like, oh. Yeah. This thing is working. This thing is working. And um, and that it just taught me a huge lesson that students don't have to be um, fully trained if they're just partners with people who need health care yeah. and, and are figuring out the inroads. I, I just loved being around the students. They, they were smart. The ones who came to the free clinics were committed. Um, and I just remember things like, oh, this guy's got a toenail fungus and I don't want him to spend $24 on a drug for that. Let's ask the pharmacy student what's on the $4 Walmart list. Mm -hmm. And the pharmacy student would get on the computer, toenail fungus, okay, well, they can get something for $4 if they'll go over to the Walmart just down the road here. <laughs> And nice. so we'd go into the patient and say, can you spring $4? You know, the health, this health care visit's free. Do you have $4 for a medication? They go, oh, yeah, yeah, I can do $4. Boop, send them down to Walmart. It's so, great. So, like, you're, you're giving another good example of how, like, we can bridge the gap between clinic to community. And so you're doing it, you know, like, uh, you proposed that the, uh, matching the medical student with the family, but you actually did it. Um, by engaging med students in equal access clinics and the mobile outreach clinic. Mm -hmm. um, I believe you were pretty instrumental in getting the mobile outreach clinic created and out to neighborhoods. Do you want to talk about how that happened and what it is? Uh, it was um, girl power. <laughs> <laughs> so um, as we talked about earlier, I made these maps where these hot spots were, and some of the hot spots were in places I was not familiar with in the community. Even though I'd lived here many, many years, I didn't know where these places were. So I started showing them around to people, and one of the people I chose to show them to were a pair of researchers from the Department of Pediatrics who I had done research with many years earlier. And they looked at those maps and they said, wow, this is really interesting. You know what you need is a clinic on wheels. And I said, oh, ha, 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 yeah, I need that <laughs> and three quarters of a million dollars and I'll be in good shape. And they said, no, we have one. You can have it. I said, what do you mean you have one? And they said, well, you know, we had this big NIH grant. We've used it for 15 years. The NIH decided the study was over and we didn't need it anymore. It's just parked over at Takachali. It's plugged in. In fact, the battery's probably still good. Why don't you just take it? And this thing's like an RV, basically, or like a bus? It was a clinic in a Bluebird bus, so a, <laughs> like a city bus yeah. that was conceived as a clinic from go. And they had used it many years. And before that, the public health department had used it to do prenatal visits. So it was a clinic and a bus from mm -hmm. go. So believe it or not, within a week, I had keys on my desk. <laughs> and you know how God just kind of tells you, sure. you must do something? Yeah, like I, yeah. I had, there was not a twinkle in my eye to drive around in a bus to these hot spots. I hadn't had a stethoscope around my neck for many years because I'd been working in pathology uh -huh. and health policy. I'm like, 
God is giving me a signal. I have to attend to this. Mm -hmm. I have to attend to this. So I went to the students, and I got some equal access medical student officers, and I said, here's a map, here's a bus, uh, come back to me with ideas. You know how I am. I did that with you yeah, and your yeah, students, yeah, totally. right? Yeah, tap into the uh, Yeah, you know, get the students thinking about students. it. Yeah. Oh, and my students came back and said, okay, and that's when we started going to the Tower Road Library, and we went to a number of libraries all over town and in the rural areas because that was one way to get into the rural areas was to park at the libraries because in the small towns, everyone knows the post office and the library. Mm -hmm. They're like the places yeah. where they feel comfortable and mm -hmm. they get stuff they need. So uh, we started going to the libraries, and eventually the libraries weren't so keen on having the diesel fumes, so they would create a plug-in so we could plug in our bus and turn uh -huh. off the motor so it wouldn't oh. stink up the yeah, whole yeah. library and make everybody feel like puking in there. Yeah. And sure enough, they got a National Library of Medicine award for the innovative partnership between a free health clinic and a library. Wow. Very cool. Super cool. Very, very cool. And that's another way that you're bringing clinic to community. Oh, definitely, you know, because right? that that removed for yeah. some people a big transportation barrier. Yeah, yeah, because well, they could walk to it in their neighborhood. Right? They didn't need a bus. What did we call it? What did you call it at the time? Place-based interventions. Mm -hmm. Go to where the yeah. Where and the that's are. that bus is still on the road. It's going no, Mobile Irish still Clinic on is the still road. alive. Is it the same bus? Well, uh, and they get a new one. What happened was a couple of years ago, the bus driver was going up the hill. Uh -huh. You know, the hill right there by Believe the Believe it or brain, not, Gainesville has hills, yes. The Brain, the brain <laughs> Institute. Yeah, oh yeah, and that's the, a steepy. Yeah. The brakes went out. Oh no. And the bus started rolling downhill. Oh no. And the that's bus driver road. thought, I'm going to kill somebody. Heck yeah. That's and a... he ditched it into a bush. Yeah. And the bus basically fell apart. All right. That was probably now, a smart move. Oh, it was, oh, he saved lives. Yeah. And nobody was mad at him. And the yeah. bus was probably <laughs> 35 years All old. All the places to go bad on brakes. I know, I know. I, I mean, the guy, the guy thought fast because kids are on bikes oh, there, pedestrians. Pedestrian yeah. Very dangerous. Going and so, and no so he just went into a bush and uh, the chassis fell apart, basically. So they uh, towed it out, and it took them a very long time to fix it. And then they bought a bunch. In the meanwhile, they created a bunch of other sites because they weren't going to stop providing the service, and they got some vans. And um, the vans are uh, a little bit more nimble because they can go park at places that aren't big enough yeah. to accommodate a bus. Yeah, yeah. So they could go out to some of the homeless encampments uh -huh. and um, some of the uh, housing complexes that didn't have a parking lot, mm -hmm. really, to speak of, apartment complexes. So, um, you know, out of uh, challenges come new innovations. And I had nothing right. to do with this. I just stood back and was kind of the proud grandma, like, oh, well, they solved their problem and they're still, <laughs> they're still doing it. I went to a conference uh, four or five years ago, and uh, they were highlighting one of the centers for independent living in Colorado, um, where it's very rural, very mountainous. 
you know, and so they got, you know, people they need to reach all over the place. And so to have them come to the brick and mortar to get any of the services that they need is a real issue. And that's an issue we face. We got 16 counties, two offices, you know, it, it's hard to, you know, get them to come here. Um, they have an, an RV that was retrofitted to, to have, you know, staff from the Center for Independent Living, social workers, um, even an OT uh, go in and out in the community and visit people. So. Um, I have uh, a, a, a dream, you know, that one day our center will have something very similar to where we can go out into the community as a bus and, and kind of like using the page out of your playbook there, being able to do place-based interventions. You should get in touch way. with Grant Harrell, who is the director of it now, uh -huh. because he loves innovative ideas. Yeah. And he's also a big fan of the Salzbacher Center in Jacksonville. Okay. And um, he may have some ideas. Uh, every once in a while, I bet somebody tries to um, give him something that he isn't really sure what to do with. You may you may have a partner in the rough there. I would All I right. would talk to him and see what he thinks about how you could work together. I I will do that. I will do that. Grant Harrell. Yeah, Grant mm -hmm. Harrell. I know I know of him. Yeah. So on your journey of connecting clinic to community. We intersected where the uh, evolution of the Southwest Advocacy Group took place that we talked about at the top of this. And this is, uh, um, you know, neighborhoods that, you know, didn't have the resources that, that, that were needed and identified as wanting by the community. And so uh, through efforts of lots of different people, a resource center, a family resource center was constructed, a health clinic was put in there. You know, again, bricks and mortar. Bricks and mortar. Um, yes, not a not a uh, not a mobile. Clinic. We did yeah, use we did use we the did mobile before it opened. I remember, mm -hmm. yeah, Thanksgiving, uh, you know, in the parking lot of the, where the, eventually the family resource center would be. So you know, this neighborhood, you know, what was it? We said three buses, one way to get to the health clinic, an hour and a half, you know, to get there. Got a health clinic, and then you know the trifecta being um, the early learning center, you know, that got put into there. Um, and I kind of want to take us in this direction now to where, you know, there was an early learning center that, that, that was put into the neighborhood. Um, why is early learning such an important facet of, uh, of a service that's needed, uh, especially for people that are low income? Why is this so important? Well, there's really good research to show that really important brain development happens before kindergarten. So actually, if you think the public school system can solve all of these disparities in life, it can't. Mm -hmm. You have to start while those uh, brains are developing earlier on. Are we and talking zero to three, zero to five? Zero to five. Right. I would say zero to five because right. most kids don't go to kindergarten until five. And mm -hmm you can already be so far behind at five mm -hmm. that the best kindergarten teacher and the best first grade teacher in the world can't catch you Under, up. Yeah. So um, we knew that daycare is super expensive. It's frighteningly expensive. Yeah. Um, I asked my daughter what she pays for two kids to go to daycare in California, $3,600 a month for two children under the age of five. Wow. And I thought to myself, Nobody has that kind of money except for two doctors, which yeah. is her situation. And, yeah. and that's rare, right? Yeah, right. 
And uh, I remember standing up at the county commission and saying, I need to be on the Children's Trust because of this problem. And what is the Children's Trust? The Children's Trust is our local taxing authority where we have agreed to tax ourselves as a county and put the money in a pile that cannot be taken away by the county or the state. Mm -hmm. It belongs to the trust, uh -huh. and the trust administer these funds in order to meet goals for children, mm -hmm. and we determine the goals, basically. Mm -hmm. And um, I wanted to be on the board of it because I wanted to have a, a voice in how we spent that money on behalf of some of the health issues. Mm -hmm. But, of course, that just morphed into health plus social determinants. But when I went there, I said, you know, when my kids were little, uh, I was working, and my boss said, it's okay, come to work whenever you want, as long as you're here for rounds at 7.30 in the morning. <laughs> right. And I had two little kids. So, you know, think about it. Wow. That was a challenge, even for a family with two doctors, to figure yeah. out what are we going to do with our kids yeah. so mom can be at rounds at 7.30 in the morning. Yeah. And it was not cheap, but we could afford it. Uh -huh. And I stood up there in front of the county commissioners and said, we solved it. But why shouldn't why should I be special? Why shouldn't everybody have the ability to have daycare at 7 o'clock in the morning and keep it open mm -hmm. until you get out of work at 5.30 or 6 o'clock in the afternoon? Not mm -hmm. everybody can do that. I can, but why not everybody? Mm -hmm. What makes her baby any less important than my baby? Right. And just that, just that inequity just made me feel so uncomfortable. You know, like inequity and access to access to early learning, uh -huh. because that childhood brain development is just as important for everybody's yeah. baby as mine. And I, I just really wanted to see that fixed. But your question was really about the child center. And we learned um, that people in swag and probably every neighborhood, every hotspot neighborhood, if we took the same survey, mm -hmm. they wanted stuff for their kids. And we knew for sure they needed early childhood education. For example, for them to get over to, to Head Start mm -hmm. would, would require a car. Yeah. And without a car, you can't get there on a bus in time for, no. for your child to yeah. be accepted for the day. Yeah. And they have these very strict rules. If you're even 15 minutes late or 30 minutes late, your child is turned away wow. for the whole day. Right. And so the moms had to have transportation to and from on, on a very strict schedule. Uh -huh. And I, I made this snarky remark: It'd be just perfect if you lived in Hale Plantation. You drop off, neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, you drop off your baby in yeah. your Volvo or uh -huh. your Subaru, and you'd have time to go have a tennis game and a latte, and you'd go pick up your baby. <laughs> It'd be a perfect morning, you know, like yeah. babysitting. Great, yeah. but you know, what about the moms who, who need it? that don't have a Subaru and don't have yeah. a tennis club to go to and yeah. couldn't afford a latte even if they wanted no, one. Don't have a and yeah. um, that's why we wanted to have something in the Swag Resource Center, because we in the Swag area, because we knew how many children there were between mm -hmm. the ages of zero and five, and there was really no daycare there at all. Mm -hmm. There might have been some mom and pop, you know, in your home um, child care, but that isn't exactly the same as high-quality early learning where the teachers actually are getting professional development and there are basically best practices yeah. happening there. 
to also just maybe like <clears throat> undergird like you know the importance of early learning from what i understand it can determine whether or not you get uh, you know healthy early learning from those years or unhealthy can determine you know, academic success whether you can almost predict mm-hmm. whether or not they'll graduate from high school or not can predict you know you know in, in engagement with the justice system whether or not they may mm-hmm. go to prison or not um, whether or not you know how long they may live health know, outcomes health outcomes like so early learning is is as much of an academic outcome as it is a health outcome right? yes yes it is but but that would assume that the early learning environment is uh, substantiated by the home environment. So if you have a chaotic home environment and you send a child for really good early learning, that won't repair everything. It's a a lot better than nothing. But it's ideal if that early learning daycare environment can somehow influence what's happening at home. You know, if the parents learn that if they deal with this behavioral issue by doing thing A rather than thing B, it works out better, and then uh-huh. things go better at home. Yeah. One thing, you know, Tony, those social determinants, if we could just solve everybody's problems at home, you know, the drug and alcohol problems, the mental health issues, the poverty issues, the kids' brains are fine. You know, we just need to put that that beautiful seed in fertile soil, it'll be fine. It'll be just fine. But that's the thing. How do we manipulate the soil so that it's good for that baby's brain? And, And that's what makes us need to be more humane about what's happened to the parents. So most people are thinking now about a two generation solution to inequity in children's learning abilities. And that is in order to fix the inequities in our schools, we need to um, make sure the home environments are more equitable, too. What do you mean by be more humane towards the home environment? Oh, not blaming the parents for everything. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's the same thing with your with yeah. your constituents, right? Yeah. Don't they get blamed for everything? Totally. Well, we, you didn't show up for that appointment. How do you expect to be yeah. helped if you didn't show up? Right. Yeah. <sighs> Thank you for saying that. Yeah, the blame, the blame game. I'm so over that. And we need to make everybody over it. You know what? The the blame is so easy, right? (laughs) So easy. For me, where I'm I'm, I'm starting to learn is that when I I blame someone or something else, it totally frees me of the responsibility to fix it. Because it's not my problem or my reason. It's theirs. And until they can fix themselves... Well, then the problem's never going to get solved. So it, it's like so easy to do blame because then it gets me off the hook for having to do anything about mm-hmm. it. It's their fault. What can I do about it? You know, which is which is the insidiousness of it because we can mm-hmm. do something about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's easy to blame and complain. So much easier to do that than to to like do what you're doing and spend a career doing in your retirement now is actually being uh, someone that solves problems rather than, you know, kind of identifying, you know, scapegoats for the problems. Mm-hmm. So easy to do. We so can rid easy. ourselves of blame and complain. And that's where resentments build up, too. So then we, you know, the next level of blaming and complaining, that leads to this toxicity of you know, resentment that builds into the people's hearts. And then tribes of people have this resentment of complaining and blaming that then circulates and then becomes these obstruction and, you know, and blockages to real social and, and community change. 
you know, that can happen. It's very toxic. So what do we do, Tony? I mean, yeah. listening is part of it, but but what else do we do? Yeah, so, so for me, where, where I've come from, and, and I definitely want to circle back with early learning and, and education, and I, and I think I see this in education, is that so, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but some of the research that I've seen that is able to close the gaps on you know, outcomes, say that we care about. So we wanna you know, address the social determinants of health so people can live longer and be resilient to you know, preventable chronic diseases and have a higher quality of life. For what I've seen is that, you know, say um, you know, someone that represents a population that is experiencing these health inequities. So let's take, you know, for example, a, a woman who is black is able to close the gap on education. She's able to get her doctorate. She's also able to reach a, you know, be employed and reach a, a higher level of a social economic status that is higher. Still, is more likely to have high blood pressure, more likely to have cardiovascular disease, diabetes, cancer, low birth weight infant, low birth weight infant, and so it's like, yes, we can close these inequities that exist among the social determinants of health, but that's not the end of the story, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and from what I've understood, as far as the research goes, is that what's speculated is, is what we haven't changed is the discrimination that occurs, you know, um, among women who are black. What hasn't changed is the stigma, the social cultural normative attitudes that they're subjected to when engaged in society. And that these ultimately are, you know, what's really driving shorter lifespans, you know, still likely to have chronic disease, lower birth rates. And so for me, you know, we can correct these systemic inequities, say, in these outcomes, which is very valiant and noble work, and we need to continue doing it and, and fix these systems, so to speak. But these systems are made up of people, and these people have attitudes, beliefs, and, uh, you know, that are going to impact other people. And so for me, it's almost like, how do we change the hearts of people? How do we get to the hearts and connect with mm-hmm. people? to be able to change the way that people feel about other people. Mm-hmm. How do we, you know, and that to me almost like, you know, is, is where the, the highest, you know, hanging fruit is. You know, it's, it's pretty hard to correct the systemic social determinants of health. It is. But once corrected, there still needs to be more work. And okay, this well, is the more quali- qualitative, intangible. I, here's piece. what I think about this. We aren't going to live long enough to see it but it's gonna change. And I'll give you a couple examples. Just in our lifetime, look how much attitudes towards gay people have changed. Okay. Like we just, we just had a piece of legislation passed that makes it okay for, marriage. for gay people yeah. to get married yeah. and their marriage to be recognized in every state in the union. Uh-huh. Now, it's shocking that it took us this long to get to it, but it is it constitutes a change from when Bill Clinton was president. Uh-huh. He never could have got that legislation through the House and the uh-huh. Senate. And he gave up and he did something not so helpful, right? The don't ask, don't tell uh-huh. is what he what yeah, he was yeah. able to do. Yeah. So when was Clinton president in 90s. the in the nineties? Yeah. So it took it took uh, more than twenty years, it took thirty years. That's one generation. So I'm so hopeful that some of these things will improve generation to generation. Like, I think there are a lot more mixed racial children now, a lot more mixed racial marriages. Mm -hmm. I think children growing up today are a lot more tolerant. 
about some of these differences that maybe my generation wasn't when I could go to a lily white school. I'm, I'm here to tell you it was white. Mm-hmm. There weren't even Jewish kids there. There weren't even Catholic kids there. I mean, this is frighteningly wow. suburbia. <laughs> yeah, within a lifetime. Yeah. But, you know, things things can change. And um, and I was actually really hopeful about the way our school system was addressing some of these diversities. And people were getting a lot of training on how to make your classroom comfortable for mm-hmm. a diverse student body. And we need to do that in Gainesville mm-hmm. because we have Sure. A ton of diversity in our classrooms here because yeah. of the university and because yeah. of immigrants and so yeah. on. Yeah. yeah, and I, you know, I think some of the um, legislative movements have not been helpful. They're kind of one step forward and now two back. Sure. But I don't think that's a permanent change. I really don't. Please tell me it's yeah. not a permanent change. I think the threat to it is the tribalism that I see the cultural issues that are there. So, so people gravitating towards a group mm-hmm. of like-minded people, you know, and, and I feel like from a just evolutionary psychology, we, we are almost wired to, to want to belong to a group. We fear alienation and exile from that group. It explains sometimes why youth without, you know, a good adequate family environment gravitate towards gangs for the sense mm-hmm. of belongingness. Mm-hmm. Where I think a big threat to reaching the hearts of people is is when they get co-opted into groups and then go along with a group mm-hmm. because it's going to you know, show their allegiance and their membership and they're signaling that they're a part of it. For me, that when people get into groups that are very toxic um, and, and these toxic groups seem to have a bit of a light to moth kind of a sense to them, that's where I feel like the biggest challenge in reaching the hearts of people are when people get into these more tribal kind of mindsets. Um, mm-hmm. But I feel like when we can break those those barriers down where people without a cognitive disability can connect with a person who has a cognitive disability, when a person who is white can connect to with a person who is black, with a person who is rich can connect with a person who is low income, and we can keep going and going and going, well, we realize we have more in common than we do different. Right. Our shared humanity can bring us together and can get us out of these like tribal kind of things that are kind of, I think, a little bit wired into us and can get out of that and that shared humanity. And I, and I believe disability is one of those areas like death. You know, almost all of us are going to encounter a disability in our lives. It doesn't matter you're male or rich female, or poor, right? Rich or poor, whether you're racial, ethnic, you know, whether you identify as one thing or another or your political affiliate, whatever religion you're or, or non-religion doesn't matter. Disability is going to touch us all. So I'm hoping like that's a, a membership we all can agree with and it doesn't get fragmented, but I don't know. Well, I've, I have some hope with the arts. Yeah. So, about yeah. So there's a movement now to have women direct and produce movies and um, documentaries and I think we are all susceptible to persuasive arts. And in the past, you know, sort of a homogeneous group of people was in charge of producing and directing movies, and I think that's changing. I have a a movie to recommend to you if you have not seen it, Lars and the Real Girl. 
Have you Lars ever heard of this girl. movie? No. no. You've got to see it. Lars and the Real Girl. Lars and the Real Girl. Uh -huh. And then if you like it, share with your constituents. Have a movie night or get people to watch it. And basically, it's about uh, uh, accepting otherness. Okay. A very different kind of person uh, was accepted by a community, and the community encircled this different man in, in whatever was going on in his head. They accepted him, and it resolved in the end. So really, it's so interesting. Lars and the Real Girl. Okay. I totally recommend yeah, it. Yeah, my word. A great movie. Right. And, um, it provides perhaps a map for the rest of us in well, society? Well, it just shows how a community said, yeah, this guy is different, uh -huh. but we're not, gonna, we're not going to exclude him. We're going to accept him the way he is. We're, and he had a psychiatrist who was very helpful, and um, the community just, just bought in and made a community for this man. And it's like a teeny tiny example of what you're talking about we need to do. And if we all were able to look at differentness the way this community did, it would be a much better world. It's a cool, it's right, a cool story. Yeah. Lars and the Real Girl. Crip Camp. You heard of that one? Mm -mm. It's a documentary funded by the Obamas. I'll recommend that to you. How do you spell it? Crip. Like cripple. Crip. Crip, crip camp, crip okay. Camp. So obviously derogatory uh, word. Right, is a crip, okay. Right? Yep. But it basically, it's a documentary, and it's a chronological you know, documentary where um, in the early 70s, there was a, um, a camp for young adults with disabilities in the Northeast. And in that summer camp was this like wonderful place where all people with disabilities felt accepted, empowered. It shows this cohort of people that attended the camp ended up being the change that was needed to enact many different laws, like the ADA. They did protests in the 70s that sit in in San Francisco uh, that was done. They stopped buses in Manhattan and Times Square because they weren't accessible at the time by taking 50 pe you know, people who are wheelchair users and blocking traffic. The impetus was, was like there was this group of students that went to this one summer camp who ended up being... The, the revolutionaries for the you know systemic change needed to advocate for people's you know civil rights that did open up hearts that did you know kind of cut across barriers and and, and were able to do those things so so I bet you never thought of this being one of your jobs is to create activists no never did <laughs> yeah no and now I'm learning you know like and, and advocacy is such a skill it's so like, that's important. really what I think we were learning in community and that's where that's I led what we with. were learning in swag like, how we? do you connect with a community how do you engage a community? Mm -hmm. And then how do you mobilize a community? And then how do you message and articulate? Like advocacy is such a skill. Such an important it's one. It's not just like going down a city hall and shaking your fist and saying what you want to say and offending a bunch of people. But remember yeah. what we did with swag. We filled the room in the county commission. Yeah. And we had, we had the university types. We had the well-to-do advocates from Hale Plantation, and we had the neighbors who mm -hmm. lived in SWAG, and we were all there asking them for the same thing. And we weren't, we weren't really shaking our fists. No. We were saying, we have identified this problem, we've identified this solution, and we need you to do X, Y, Z. Yeah. 
And every single time we did that, we had a unanimous vote. Which they never vote unanimously. Never, never. And part of it was they want to make good things happen. And we convinced them with our group. I think if one of us had gone, it wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't have mattered if we were the residents of SWAG or the university types. It wouldn't have worked. It was the group that the people on the county commission said, whoa, they've done a really good job of demonstrating a problem and a solution that we're capable of making happen. Let's all feel good today and do something good for our community. And that's why it was unanimous. That's the winning formula to me. But we never asked for anything ridiculous. We we had done our homework. We knew exactly what they could afford and what we needed and even in the mobile clinic we did sort of a simple thing with the uh, what did we call that group basically it was all the people that worked in the free clinics and we needed a bus stop down by the rama mercy clinic and the bus didn't stop down there on saturday mornings when they had their clinic open but all of us needed that clinic to be open because that was the only place we could get them to see a rheumatologist or a cardiologist because Rama had all the specialty doctors. And the problem was the bus. And we all, all of us, from all the different free clinics, went to city commission, because they have the transportation committee, and said, you have to make a bus stop there. And we don't care if you do it any other day of the week. It's got to be Saturday morning. Mm -hmm. And they did. I mean, we were unstoppable because of our group. Yeah. That was made up of different groups. Well, it was you know, it was the um, safety net collaborative. Yeah. So obviously, none of us were going to profit by it. It wasn't for us. Yeah. It was so our patients could get to Rama, where they were providing excellent free care. Right. And they did it. And we felt we felt so good. And I'm sure the city commission felt really good. Everyone felt good. Yeah. It's just. The- you know, and so going back to like, if we were to, you know, have these separate groups of people be able to connect with each other, like how much did, you know, we learn from the swag neighborhoods, low income residents that did not look like us, did not have the shared life experiences that we had. And how much did they learn from us? Yeah. Again, different life experiences look differently, but how much did we all have in common? You know, even though we have these shared different experiences, we have this like shared, you know, we we all we all want to be loved. You know, we we all want to be accepted. We fear rejection. You know, it's like these parts of our humanity that we all share, no matter what our ages are, what our orientations are, what our, our political affiliations are. We share this. And the empowerment, you know, we had a voice. We had a collective voice. And I think some of the people in the swag area didn't think they had a voice. And we said, yeah, you do. Yeah. And we're going with you. Mm-hmm. We're going with you. We're going to grease the cogs so that your voice is going to be heard. So come on, come down to county commission with us. And they did. I'm sure they didn't think that anything was going to come of that, but it sure did. No. Yeah. Because think of how many times it didn't. But maybe it didn't have all those parts that we're talking right. about. That it had The partnerships. Yeah. Yeah, we need each other. Unity. Like, mm-hmm. It's just about unity. And, and, and in an age where there's a lot of division, 
I think that's what I was alluding to earlier. That's my worry. Is that like the division of tribes, you know, that we I hear you. I hear you, but I'm 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 just thinking as an old woman uh-huh. that that's a temporary blip. Like I don't think social media is going to rule our beliefs it's, forever. It's not sustainable. It's not sustainable. No. It's it's cricky around the edges right now and I yeah. hope it just crumbles well, it a bit. It kind of goes it reminds me of the the Martin Luther King quote like hate is just too heavy of a burden to yes. bear. It's just exhausting. It's exhausting. Yes. This toxicity is just like I think it's just a wear people thin. Yeah. It's draining. It's soul draining. Yeah. And crushing. Love. Yeah. Love, love is sustaining. So much love easier. is expansive. Yeah, this other stuff—it's so contracting, and uh, is just toxic. I just want to say one thing. Yeah. I am so happy to know you, and I'm so proud of the person you've become. That—that that means a lot, um, because I've always wanted to uh, be you when I grow up. <laughs> Um, you know, what I've loved about you and what I really uh, look up to you as far as when I was in uh, academia, it was either like you were applied or you were theoretical. And you were this like both. And there, there, there's so few people that are like, yeah, you need both. You, you know, we need to have this roadmap and these, you know, good theories and we need to measure stuff and be quantifiable. And we got to be able to do it in the real world because it's not uh, the community is not a Petri dish. It always doesn't go according to plan, and, and to be able to straddle both is, is, to me, the sweet spot. And to not, again, get in these tribes, but to be someone that is an outlier uh, into that area. To also, you know, you're doing this, and let me add, we only have a little bit here, and I think this could be a whole episode, but like, you, your why. Like, why do you do what you do? For me, from, from the external, it's just like you care so deeply about people. And not just people who look like you and, and come from where you come from, but like, you know, you tell me, like, why do you do what you do? All I know is ever since I was a little girl, I always thought the different people were the best. And I remember when I was in like third or fourth grade, we had a brand new girl in our class and she didn't start at the beginning of the year. And the teacher said, Nancy, I want you to take care of her. I want you to be her friend. And she was a missionary, and she had these totally weird clothes, and I thought she was fascinating. And that's just the way I popped out of my mother. (laughs) I have always thought differentness was fascinating. Ready-made. And I had a friend in middle school whose hair fell out. I thought that was so interesting. What do you mean your hair fell out? She said, yeah, I'm wearing a wig. (laughs) I'm like, what? And it made me just so interested you know, and I was always that way. So yeah. I don't know. I think some people are just that way. Sure. And I know it's true that this tribalism is an evolutionary protection, but I think some of us have just the opposite thing yeah. of wanting to affiliate with the different one. Yeah. Amen. Normal's boring. Normal's kind of boring. <laughs> Everyone's doing it <laughs> or wanting to do it or pretending to do it. And, and being interested. I think you nailed something there. Also, uh, that's really important is like being interested in, in wanting to learn more, which again goes to that humility. It's like, yes. you know, it's like, uh, we'll never uh, stop learning. There's no finish line to this. Mm-hmm. We don't know it all. Well, thank you so much for coming in and doing this. I know we're going to do it again. I enjoyed it. Me too. Thank you, Dr. Hart. 
Thank you for coming. Thank you for being the role model and example that I need in my life to be the better version of myself. Gosh. Until next time, onward and upward. Onward. Thanks for listening to the Independent Life Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Independent Living of North Central Florida. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you know anyone who might benefit from listening, share this podcast and invite them to subscribe too. For questions, suggestions, or if you have a story you'd like to share, please email us at cilncf.org at gmail.com or call us at 352 372- 378-7474. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, support, advocate, and empower each other to live the independent life.